morning, Rimrock. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Ready to praise and worship our King. I hope. I'm excited to be here with you. I'm excited to be here just for our King. We're here for Him, because of Him, all for Him. So let's give Him the glory this morning.
not one to uh, call people out often, but you guys, power of hell, forever defeated. <laughs> That's a pretty big thing, right? That's a pretty big deal. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son for us. And just by believing in him, we live forever. So I just want to ask you guys to put your hands together. We're going to do this chorus again. I just want you guys to give it your all. And I want you guys to really just think about these words, this promise that we're singing, God. We're, we're walking in freedom. That's no small thing. And if you're not moved by that this morning, or if you don't know that for yourself this morning, then I encourage you to take this moment and just ask God to show you that. Uh, and if you do know that, then I don't know why we're just sitting here uh, and not raising our hands, not lifting our voices. So if you guys want, put your hands together.
Amen. Praise the Lord. By his stripes, we are healed. Amen. You guys can have a seat. I think Michael's coming up to give announcements. No, it changed on me. I'm so sorry. So I'm not Michael. <laughs> Good morning. My name's Kelly Weishuttle, and I am the World Missions Coordinator here at Rimrock, and I'm here this morning to welcome you, all of you, but especially those of you who are here for the first time. We're glad you're here with us. Um, is that me? No. <laughs> There's a, in front of you, there are, in the back of the seats, there are some welcome cards if you want to fill that out and there's a welcome desk in the back of the foyer if you take that back there you can get a little gift from us I think it might be a coffee mug or something but we would love to hear and see who you are so please fill that out um, do you have these bulletins do you have one of these I'm not gonna read it to you but there's a lot of great stuff in there so on the first page it talks about the Good Friday service which is gonna be right here, and the Easter service in which we're gonna combine with our downtown campus, and that's gonna be at the Monument Fine Arts, so that's kinda of cool. And then, if you open it up, um, there's information about a women's retreat, and then the bottom part of that orange is our 21 days of intention. We do this every year, and I love when we do it. Now in the spring, things are, growing, becoming, you know, back to life. And I think it's a perfect time for us to practice these 21 days of intention. So there's a lot of information there about ways you can connect and kind of what that's all about. Um, and then there is a workshop that's being held at Parkview in a couple weeks on the other side. So I just encourage you to take a look at the bulletin. If you didn't get one, there are lots of them at the back. You can grab one on your way out. Um, so there are baptisms on the Good Friday. If you're interested in that, there's information about how you could uh, kind of sign up, I guess, to get baptized on Good Friday. It's a special time to do that. So this morning, I'm so happy that I get to do this. I'm going to call up those RCCS students who are going on a short-term missions trip, and we're going to pray for them together. Uh, come on up, don't be shy. And, and there are a couple uh, parents going as well, and they're going to join us. While they're coming out, I, I just want to say how cool this is. As a church, some of you pray for our teens. Some of you pray for laborers going into the harvest. And this is kind of special for me because I'm part of Rimrock, so I get to pray for these. But these guys know me. This guy knows me as mom. <laughs> and... These three know me as Mrs. Y-Shuttle because I'm a teacher at Rapid City Christian. I've had all of these guys in class. They're all great students with great hearts. And there's one more young lady, Olivia Kiefer. She couldn't be here this morning. So these students are going to two different countries and they leave in about a week. They're going to Costa Rica, one group, and one group is going to the Dominican Republic. And they have a lot of stuff planned. They're gonna be doing music and VBS and practical painting stuff and to be honest I don't even know skits they're planning they have a lot of stuff going on and this morning I was thinking about this verse and this is kind of my prayer for them it's in Proverbs 16 9 and here's what it says you might know it it says in their hearts humans plan their course 
these guys have a lot planned, and I, I, I'm a planner, I like that. And then the bottom part of, the, of this uh, verse is the best part. It says, but the Lord establishes their steps. And I would, that's what I'd like to pray. Regardless of what they have planned, I think it's going to be awesome that the Lord would establish their steps while they're there. And we all know that God can do multiple good things out of one situation. So he has good plans for these students. He has good plans for the people they're going to meet, for the churches they're going to work with. He can just do all sorts of good things. So this is Blake. Abby, Ryan, and Ryan's parents, Joel and Lisa, and Eliana, and then we also have Olivia uh, Kiefer, and her parents are going as well. And what I'd like to do this morning, I think there's so many things that we can pray for these guys. We can pray for their physical health so they can get the most out of this. We can pray for their emotional health. We can pray for spiritual things. We can pray for breakthroughs. So would you just pray in the way that the Holy Spirit directs you to pray for these students? And I'm going to pray this verse for them, that the Lord would establish their steps. So isn't this neat? We get to pray for the, I mean, look at this. What an answer to prayer to see these teens who are, and parents who are willing to go. So would you bow your heads with me and pray as the Lord directs you, and I'll pray for us uh, corporately. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity that these uh, young men and women have to go to uh, experience, Lord, what you're doing in other parts of the world. Lord, thank you for their heart that will serve. Thank you, Father, for providing the finances. Lord, we thank you for every plan that you have. And Lord, I stand on this verse that says, in in our hearts, we make plans, but Lord, you have even better and deeper things that we don't even know about. And so, Father, we say yes to every plan that you have for the Kiefers and for Eliana and for the Porches and for Abby and for Blake. Lord, we pray that every single prayer that you want them to pray, every word you want them to speak, every way they want you want them to learn about you and what you're doing in other parts of the world, Lord, we pray that every plan of yours would come to pass in, in about a week for these students. And Lord, prepare their hearts, I pray, and prepare the hearts of those that they're going to be working with in these two countries. And Lord, we trust you and we look forward to hearing when they get back all the things that you've done. Amen.
praise your name, that it is holy, holy forever. God, we thank you. We just offer all of this worship up to you. God, I know that you care more about what is in the heart than what is outside. But may our love for you, may our worship of you, God, just overflow into our whole lives, God. That our lives would be an expression of faith and worship to you. God, be with Evan as he comes now and brings your word. Give us ears to hear, God, what you have to say. In your name, amen. So as Evan comes up, if you guys don't know, this is Evan Hayes. Uh, he is a pastor of our downtown campus. So if you don't know, we are one church with two campuses, and every once in a while, Ben and Evan like to just throw everybody off. And if you know, they uh, enjoy getting to visit each other's campuses, and so Evan is here today to bring us a word. Thanks. Yeah. Good morning. And I think I said this last time I got an opportunity to come here, but I just got to repeat it so heavily on my mind right now. Every time I come here into this building with these people, it feels like I'm coming home. It's wild. It's the power and really what I'm seeing, the importance of being raised in a church. And I'm not the only one. Raise your hand if you were raised in this church. Raise your hand. Keep them up if you're raising your own kids now in this church. There's just something about spending so much of your childhood in this space with these people that knits the value of this and this experience deeply within you. And so that way when you come back, it's like you're embraced, not only by God and his goodness, but by the people. And that's the power of a church that is as healthy as our church, right? 42 years. I think about all the individuals that will get a chance to be impacted because of the health of our church. All right. Revelation. I got to pray. I know we're praying all the time, but I have to pray right now just to fully surrender whatever lies ahead to God. God, right now we stop, we recognize your reality, and we surrender to you. We want to hear from you, so we give you our minds. Spirit, battle against our flesh, and speak your truth. Amen. All right, I hope you guys are ready. So over the past three months as a church, we've been exploring the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show to his servant what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. This is the first verse of Revelation. The opening statement given by the recipient of the visions and the author of the books that we have, book that we have been studying. Whenever I allow my mind to go deeply into anyone else's writings, I have found that it is always helpful to continually hang on to the purpose of their work. Often, the author will state this at the very beginning in something that has been labeled as the thesis statement. When I continue to bring myself back to the overall purpose of whatever I may be reading, right, whatever that person is trying to create or trying to communicate, it allows me to not get lost in the inappropriate or the unnecessary details and then get sidetracked or pulled away from what they, the author, wants me to better understand. Through my study of, the Re of Revelation, I am learning that this is especially important, even crucial, when it comes to the Word of God. In the, if the 66 books that comprise our Bible were inspired by the creator of everything, and there is so much evidence that shows that this is true, 
if they were experiences, thoughts, visions, even words given by the almighty maker of heaven and earth, then it is really important that we understand the main things that he wants us to understand when we invest our time and mental energy into studying his word. Revelation, it is one of the most intense and confusing books we have. Because of that, there have been endless rabbit trails of confusion and fear created by interpreters over the millennia. Out of these different interpretations, different denominations, even different religions other than Christianity have been created. As I've been diving headlong into trying to figure out what God may be communicating to us through this, I try to keep bringing my mind back to the two different key principles or thesis statements that are clearly articulated right off the bat. The first one is found in verse 1. Let's read it one more time. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angels to his servant, John. This means that whatever we are reading in Revelation are prophecies of things that will take place at some point in the future. It's important, though, Right? This is really important to remember what type of literature this is. It's apocalyptic. The word revelation that we see right at the beginning, in the Greek, it's apocrypha. Because of this, because it's apocalyptic literature, it is heavily symbolic. That means that what we are reading may not literally happen the way that it says. However, the symbolism that we are seeing is there to help us better understand the things that will actually take place. Now, through that framework, that these are symbolic prophecies of the things that will someday happen, let's look at the three chapters that we have in front of us today. Yeah, you heard me right. Three chapters. 17, 18, and 19. Right? It makes sense why Ben was willing to swap pulpits with me. I'm just kidding. Right now, he's doing the exact same thing that I'm trying to do at our downtown location. Right? So last week, Ben up here and Chris Parrish downtown did excellent jobs unpacking the seven bowls of wrath that God will someday pour out on his creation. This was found in chapters 16 and 15 and 16. Now the first six bowls of wrath that we read about, they were directed at creation. Things like the earth, the sun, and the sea. As God allows these created things to experience the consequences of their rejection of him, people also reap the direct cause and effect. Now, for me, it seems the reason God first allows his creation to be punished out of his wrath is to show his desire for his people to turn back to him. He's like, man, I'm going to show you my power and what is going to come upon you when you choose to reject me on creation so that way you have the ability to repent and pull back to me. But sadly, we see as these judgments are happening, people openly deny him. Now, at the end of Revelation 16, we see the seventh angel pour out his bowl of wrath into the air and then get a four-verse summary of God's wrath being poured out, this time directly on humanity. Let's read that summary. Chapter 16, verses 17 through 21. The seventh angel poured, out, poured his bowl out into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a violent earthquake, such, such as had not occurred since people were upon the earth. So violent was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered great Babylon and gave her the wine cup of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountain 
rests were to be found. And huge hailstones, each weighing about 100 pounds, dropped from heaven on people until they cursed God for the plague of the hail. So fearful was that plague. Chapters 17, 18, and 19, what lies ahead, give us a detailed description of what this will look like. Now, if you give me just 15 to 20 minutes of your attention, I will do my best to describe what I see in those chapters. But please do not hold me to too high of a standard. I am flawed. My brain, it is limited and skewed. Because of that, if I tried to hone in on the details, I guarantee you I'd give you things that would mislead you that might even be flat out wrong. Because of that, my hope this morning is to give you a big picture understanding of what is happening here. And one of the best ways to do this is to hang on to Jesus' thesis statement. Remember what that was? These are things that will soon take place. All right, not pointing out my flaws. Those are, obvi- those are obvious, right? Let's dig in and see what God wants to bring us. So in chapter 17, it is a description of a woman called the great whore or the whore of Babylon. It's not every day you get to say an offensive word in church. I'll I'll show you where I'm getting this from, verses 1 and 2. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the judgment on the great whore who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and with the wine of whose fornication the inhabitants of the earth have become drunk. Now remember, this is heavily symbolic. Now in verse 18, John gives us an explanation of who this woman is. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Now from my understanding, the great city is symbolic of a giant collection of individuals, their rulers, and the culture that they then create. In this case, it seems like everyone as part of this is not a child of God. This is something that Augustine, St. Augustine, labeled the city of man. Let me explain this. Now, this woman, the great whore, she is the antithesis of the woman that we saw in Revelation 12, the one who gave birth to the Messiah and then the rest of the children of God. The woman in Revelation 17, she is described as being full of luxury and self-indulgence. She is continually seeking pleasure and fulfillment from things and people of this world, and in doing that, she is choosing to worship everything but her creator. We see this in verses three through five. So he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beach that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a cup full of abominations and the impurity of her fornications. And on her forehead was written a name, a mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of whores and of earth's abomination. We see that she takes the rejection of God even one step further than just worshiping creation. She also enjoys killing the people of God. Verse 6, And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the witnesses to Jesus. So not only has she chosen to replace the one that made everything with the things that he made, she is also looking to destroy the children of God. Now remember, this woman is symbolic of the city of man, or a giant collection of individuals, their rulers, and the culture that they create. 
What John is being shown in this vision is a graphic illustration of what humanity looks like through a spiritual lens. When we see ourselves as the greatest things on earth, as even greater than the one who made us, we then become drunk on our own pride and selfishness and the wicked desires that it produces. Instead of being able to practice restraint, we are continually whoring ourselves out to whatever catches our eye and tickles our fancy. And the more that humanity drinks of its arrogance, the drunker we become on the power, on our power to bring about whatever we think is best. Over time, this can lead to wanting, even needing, to remove those people that stand in our way of being our own gods. Specifically, the children of God. Those that see his authority and understand their own position in the universe. A place of full submission to their creator. Now, something that's been really important for me to see in this is that it isn't just speaking hypothetically, the idea of what humanity may someday turn into. In chapter 17, we see, two ref we see references to two specific nations or groups of people that have lived. The first is Babylon. This is the name given to the woman. Babylon was a nation that God used to take down Judah in 586 B.C. If you want to read more about that, go to Daniel. King Nebuchadnezzar, he was the emperor, the ruler of that kingdom. The second great city or nation is the Roman Empire. In verses 9 and 10, there's an allusion to its capital city, Rome. This calls for a mind that has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Also, they are seven kings, of whom five have fallen, one is living and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain only for a little while. In the city of Rome, there were, and most likely still are, seven hills, or mountains. And the seven kings may be speaking of the fullness of emperors, right? Seven is often seen as fullness in the Bible, right? These are the ones that ruled over the Roman Empire. Another important part that helps confirm this for me is who the author was and who his original audience were. When was John living? The end of the first century AD. And where was he living? In the Roman Empire. Who did he write those seven letters to at the very beginning and the rest of these prophecies? To churches in the Roman Empire. Now the reason I take the time to point out that the whore is symbolizing real nations or groups of people that have lived is so that way we can better understand the reality of what is being presented here. Both of these nations Babylon and Rome are known for their power and their excess and their willingness, even desire, to elevate their kings or emperors to positions of gods. They are also known for the ways in which they worship anything and everything but the God of the Bible. When a person or a group of people turn to their limited and skewed perspectives on life, when out of their faulty understandings people create their own truth of what reality is and what they believe can bring them the best life, when they do this, they become just like the great whore, drunk on their own pride, heavily indulging in whatever seems fun or pleasurable or worthwhile or wise in that moment, not caring at all about what their creator may think. They are fully consumed with their own interpretation of what they, what they believe is right. This is the way that Babylon and Rome were. 
And this is the way that countless other nations have been throughout human history. And it seems to be the same way that our nation is headed now. But John, he doesn't stop with the evil simply being identified. Chapter 18 describes the rightful judgment that awaits her. Look at the first eight verses of 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his splendor. He called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. It has become a dwelling place of demons, a haunt of every foul spear and a haunt of every foul bird, a haunt of every foul and hateful beast. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxury. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that way you do not have to take part in her sins, and so that way you do not share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her as she herself has rendered. I'll come back to that, but hang on to that. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double drought for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, so I give her a like measure of torment and grief. Since in her heart she says, I rule as a queen, I am no widow, and I will never see grief. Therefore, her plagues will come in a single day, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Whoa. The rest of 18 gives you the reaction that people have to this judgment. The merchants, the businessmen, the rulers are just like, oh, Babylon is being taken down. Now there's a decent amount that can and should be pulled out of these verses from this chapter. And I say that to encourage you to dig into it more on your own. But overall, what I want you to see is that she, the whore, or the city of man, Right? The group of these people that have glorified themselves over God, they are being judged for the choices that they made. This is often where people begin to look at God as a cruel master that is simply waiting for his opportunity to pour out judgment on his people. But there are two really important things I want you to consider right now. The first is a lesson that is so easy to learn from history. For nations that operate in the ways that both Babylon and Rome did, it is only a matter of time before they reap the natural cause and effect of their choices. They are conquered by another nation that is just like them. Babylon, they took down Assyria. Within 90 years, Babylon was taken down by Persia in one day. Did you guys read about that one day? If you want to hear more of that history, come and talk to me. I'll tell you how they did it. Right? After the Persians, who rose up? The Greeks took them out. Who took out the Greeks? The Romans. After about 400 years of the Roman civilization, the Goths walked in and destroyed them easily. After the Goths came Charlemagne, who was taken down by the Vikings, who were taken down by the monarchs of England, France, and Spain. 300 years later, America rose to a position of global power until... What I see clearly stated in chapter 18 and then verified throughout history is that when a group of people choose to do whatever they think is right in their own eyes, it is only a matter of time before another more powerful group of people will do the same thing to them. 
Now, this by no means discounts God and his control over everything. For me, it actually shows that God has more power. Like any good father, he is willing to give his creation what they choose, right? Out of their own free will, which he gives to them, which shows his love, he then allows them to reap the, reap the consequences of those choices. When people choose to reject God as their authority and put themselves into that position, it is simply a matter of time before the hammer will fall and they will be taken out by their own choices. Check out verse 6. I pointed it out earlier. Render to her as she herself is rendered. You get that? And repay her double for her deeds. The second thing that I want us to see here is that this is all prophecy. Remember that? It was prophecy for John's original audience and for us about things that hadn't happened or still haven't happened yet. We need to now be asking the question, why? Why did God give them insight into what was coming their way? Why not just allow them to experience whatever they and we are choosing to experience? Because just like a good father that lets his children make their own choices, God also wants us to know ahead of time what will happen if we choose to remain aligned with the culture that is rejecting him. He does this with the hopes that we would then, after finding out what is coming, choose to do what it says to do in verse 4. Come out of her, my people, so that way you do not take part in her sins and so you do not share in her plagues. Even though we live in the midst of a culture that is currently set on denying God's existence and therefore rejecting his instructions on how to live, just because we live in the midst of that doesn't mean that we have to fall in line with its principles and its actions and then have to experience the full weight of its judgment. This is why God is giving John these prophecies, to open our eyes so that way we can willingly pull away from the corruption of our culture, the one in which we live. Now, for those of us that read our Bibles, for those of us that have experienced God in our lives, this shouldn't at all be surprising. This is who God is from cover to cover and from the beginning of time all the way through eternity. This is a major reason why he gave John and us this revelation. So that way we may know what is coming so that we can be intentional about running with perseverance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12 looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. These prophecies about the judgment that is to come, they are gifts to the people of God. Did you hear and catch that? Gifts to us from our creator, our savior, and our sustainer. When I actually start looking at Revelation through this lens, it has fully shifted the way that it makes me feel, and the thoughts that it then produces. Right, and this leads right to our second thesis statement that I see in the book of Revelation. This is what we'll end with. Right? And it's one that's been being brought to you week after week by the people up here. Revelation 1.3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the word of, words of the prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it. For the time is like I just mentioned, these visions, they are gifts to the people of God. 
They were given so that those who are willing to listen to what they are saying and follow what they are recommending, so that way they will be blessed. Now, there are many different ways that the people are blessed through this book. The one that I want to focus in right now is what I see clearly described in chapters 17, 18, and 19. So much of the evil and wickedness that I, and the judgment that it brings, this is coming from Satan. Sadly, this is a word that's not mentioned all that often in our culture, even within our churches. It is coming from the ruler of this world, right? the king of darkness. And what I see here, there is a day in which he will be fully removed from this world and our lives. And I hope you heard that. A major root of the selfishness and the pain and the loss that we experience in our day-to-day lives, it will be utterly removed from our world. Now, I know I've been talking for a long time, but let me just quickly show you where I'm getting this from. Let's first look at the reality of Satan and what he brings into our lives. So in chapter 17, verse 3, we see the great whore riding on a beast. So he carried me away in spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now this beast, it was introduced back in chapter 13 as someone directly put in place by the dragon or Satan. This means that the city of man is being led, even controlled by rulers that have been put into power by the king of darkness. In verse 16, we see Satan and his rulers' attitudes or sentiment towards the people that they are ruling over. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the whore. It's the people. They will make her desolate and naked. They will devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. This is clearly stating that the major influences of our culture, of of cultures of places like Babylon and Rome and the United States and where it's headed, they have no real concern for the welfare of the people that they are influencing. Instead, they are happily leading them towards destruction. The same one that we saw in chapter 18. But because of how good our Father is, Right? God, our creator, he will someday fully remove their selfish wickedness from our reality. We, clear this, we see this clearly stated in Revelation 19, verses 11 and on. This is powerful. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Notice an exclamation mark? That doesn't occur very often in the Bible. Its rider is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name inscribed that no one knows but him. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, wearing fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which will strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name inscribed, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now the man on the white horse, this is Jesus, the faithful, the true, the Word of God. Someday he will be returning to righteously judge and make war on all that is evil. Now how will we do this? Verse 15, it states that a sword is coming out of his mouth. Now remember, apocryphal 
literature, it's heavily symbolic. So this sword, right, what actually comes out of a person's mouth? Words. In the same way that God spoke our reality into existence, all that he has to do to recreate our realities back into what he intended them to be, back to the only full of the good that he can bring, the one that we long for, all he has to do is speak. Nothing else. Hang on to that. It's not a William Wallace coming and chopping people's heads off, in my opinion. It's God returning and saying, it's finished. I gave you a chance, and you chose one way or the other, and now it's time for me to restore. In verses 17 through 21, we get an idea of what this restoration will look like. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called all the birds that fly in midheaven. Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and their riders, flesh of all, both free and slaves, both small and great. Then I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the riders on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed in its presence the signs by which he deceived those who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were killed by the sword, remember where it comes from, of the rider of the horse, the sword that came from his mouth, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. I know this is graphic. Personally, I believe that this is written with such graphic language in order to catch the audience's attention. Again, it's symbolic. I don't think this is how it will actually go, but he's just like, man, you need to see what is coming. You need to understand the power of your choices, the consequences, good or bad, that will come upon you. There is a day that Jesus will return, and in that moment, by the sound of his voice, everyone and everything that has chosen to align themselves against him, they will be given exactly what they want a total removal from his presence. Now, verse 19 has helped me recognize something that I see as important. It clearly shows that the beast and the kings and the armies, most likely these armies, are people, ordinary people, like you and me, who have chosen to align themselves with the kings, with the beast, right? It shows that these people, right, the moment that Jesus returns, they are face to face with him in all of his glory. And in that moment, they have two choices still. They could fall on their face and worship him. Or they could be destroyed by his glory. Whatever they choose throughout their life and in that moment, they will get what they chose. And when you choose to reject the author of life, what do you get? Death, specifically eternal death. We'll be looking at this in more detail in two weeks when we unpack chapter 20. What I want you to see as I finally stop talking is what is the way in which Jesus will someday remove every form of evil and wickedness from this world. And with that, all of the pain and the heartache that it brings. This is one of the major reasons why John gave, God gave John these visions and told him to pass them on to bless the children of God with the hope of what he will someday bring about. 
And this isn't tentative or false hope, the type of hope that you place in something that may or may not happen. This is hope placed in the creator of everything, the one who knit together our reality at the subatomic level. It is hope placed in the God that created each of you for this time and this place, who put breath in your lungs this morning and who allowed the sun to rise. This is hope placed in uh, in one who willingly stepped into our broken world and then brought us the only way out of our own misery. And as you walk out of here, please be thinking about those two thesis statements. Someday, cultures that are aligned against God, they will face the natural consequences of their choices. But we, we do not have to fall in line with that wickedness. We have a choice and a calling, I believe, to not take part in their sins and then share in their plagues. To encourage us to stand strong, know that someday everything will be made right by our God. Hold firmly to that hope that the evil will be defeated and then only good will be left. You know, I assume we have one more song as they come up. Let's, let's just close our eyes, still our minds. Allow the spirit to just room to solidify something within you. God, before we just enter back into the rat race, we give you this time to speak to us, to highlight something in these verses, to just prick something within our hearts that we should hang on to. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That's why we give you access to our minds right now. Guide us in the truth.
thanks so much for being here, you guys. And I uh, hope you have a great week. And we'll see you next Sunday.